Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. When he opened his popular and award-winning restaurant, Rintaro, Sylvan Mishima Brackett wanted to serve the kind of food you'd expect if the Bay Area were a region of Japan. The restaurant has become known for its dedication to sourcing, where it stands out even here in the Bay Area, and for the exacting execution of traditional Japanese dishes. Now you can try your hand at their udon or dashi broth or fried delicacies. We talk about the new Rintaro cookbook and the details of Japanese cuisine. That's all coming up after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. What a few years it has been for restaurants in our area. Spiraling costs, COVID weirdness, and for Sylvan Mishima Brackett and his restaurant Rintaro, there was a New Year's Eve flood that wiped out their special bento boxes for that night and made a big old mess. But Sylvan and Rintaro have continued to put out beautiful food in the space that his father helped build. And this winter, his cookbook, Rintaro was published, co-written with his friend and friend of the show, Jessica Badalana. This week, they were named one of the New York Times' best cookbooks. It's an ode to the precision, simplicity, and labor of Japanese cooking, and it's just so beautiful. Welcome to the show, Sylvan. Thanks so much for having me. And welcome to Jessica, co-author of Rintaro. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So, Sylvan, let's talk about what you wanted Rintaro to be. I mean, you wrote that you wanted it to be a place that tasted both like Japan and California, not fusion food, but the kind of food you'd expect if the Bay Area were a region of Japan. What's that mean in practice? Um, so, yeah, so my my um, early 20s, I spent a lot of time drinking and eating and uh, hanging out in Isakaya in Japan uh, with friends. And we'd, we'd stay for two, three, four hours Um uh, people in Japan don't typically have a lot of space to entertain at home, so this was a place where people could go and and spend a lot of time together. And this was a kind of restaurant that didn't really exist in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So when I thought of opening a Japanese restaurant, it was the kind of natural thing for me to to want to do. And um, I also had come from working at Chez Panisse for many many years, and um, and also having spent some time cooking in Japan had discovered that the best tasting foods had been ones where they used the ingredients that were local to wherever they were. Mm-hmm. So 
my big breakthrough was the idea that you could cook Japanese food in California using California ingredients, which <laughs> now seems pretty obvious, but um, for me was kind of a revelation. And that meant like trying to find, say, the fish that made sense to use here, not necessarily like importing them from Japan. Exactly, yeah. So uh, fish is actually a, a kind of a big one. Um, the quality of fish in Japan is extremely high across the board. So even at a supermarket, you can get absolutely perfect mackerel or uh, Thai sea bream. Um, in the U.S., it's not as sophisticated around fish, but I've always thought that we share the same Pacific Ocean as Japan. Mm -hmm. I mean, granted, we're 3,000 miles away, but um, my idea was to, to use as much local stuff as possible. So we use a lot of the beautiful local fishes that are here. I was uh, cracking up because in the book, um, you both write, your average non-foodie office worker in Japan knows the difference between four kinds of mackerel. And I was like, I feel ashamed and astonished that I'm not sure I could even describe mackerel in general. Um, definitely not as sophisticated as your uh, average non-foodie office worker. Yeah. No, it's incredible. Um, so as we mentioned at the top, I mean, this has really been a wild year for y'all. Um, what was it like both recovering from the pandemic and also this flood disaster at the same time? Um, I mean, the pandemic, I uh, it was very difficult for restaurants generally. So I, I have a little bit of difficulty complaining too much. And also, you know, so many people, it was a global catastrophe. So yeah. I can't, I feel like I can't complain too much about that, although it was difficult for me and for millions of other people. Um, <clears throat> the flood was a particular kind of misery. Uh, we were working mm -hmm. on our New Year's bento box, which is uh, something that we've, done every year. It's a very kind of deluxe project. We spend a week working on it. And then um, New Year's Eve day, uh, the water started to rise. Oh, man. And uh, yeah, it was, it was crazy. And I mean, like, how bad was it? Like, was it like to your waist, to your ankles? Like, yeah, in the courtyard, which is just a little below street level, it was about three and a half feet deep. Oh, um, Oh, man. So what was it like when you're recovering from something like that? I mean, do you just have to like hire like a specialized cleaning crew? Are you in there with a mop? Like what's happening? Yeah, we actually we I had a lot of staff come back in the days afterwards and we we got it looking pretty good. It took about a week and then we had someone test the walls and they were absolutely drenched. So we had a, a renovation company come rip out the walls and we had to take out the whole kitchen and kind of disassemble the restaurant, put it back oh. together. So it was a bit of a project. Um, although the silver lining is I'd been collecting uh, broken and semi-usable things over the years, and I was finally able to get rid of all of the <laughs> junk that I've been storing in the nooks and crannies. Oh, man. So, and also, you know, the uh, Jessica, let's talk a little bit about um, the idea of this cookbook uh, as you all executed it. I mean, you've authored a bunch of books, including one with Charles Pham, Slanted Door, and your own repertoire. I mean, what was different about this one? Well, I wanted to say first, too, that the flood obviously was a specific kind of misery, as Sylvan said. But what was sort of amazing was to see a friend of the restaurant organized a GoFundMe campaign. Um, and just so there was a tremendous outpouring of community support for Sylvan yeah. and the restaurant. And I think, um, you know, that's sort of the silver lining, too, is that I think we all got this sense. And, and hopefully, Sylvan, you got a sense of like how beloved this restaurant is and people were like you have to reopen like so i don't think you know at moments of sort of flagging confidence about reopening i think mm -hmm. there was this sort of bolstering effect of you know people that love that restaurant Wait, were you thinking about giving it up no no but, uh, <laughs> but i was pretty depressed although i've got to say i was pretty stoic through the whole thing until that gofundme money started coming in and i 
felt a lot of emotion and gratitude. So oh, thank you, yeah. everybody out there. Okay, yeah. Jessica, now tell us about the cookbook. <laughs> uh, well, Sylvan and I have known one another for quite a long time. I also worked at Chez Panisse. Sylvan had the good job. He was a creative director and, and worked as an assistant to Alice Waters. I was the uh, reservationist, which is a less <laughs> most of the restaurant. But, um, you know, we spent a lot of time in that office space together and we became friends. I became friends um, with his wife, Jenny Wapner, who also um, who published the book published for the book. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and so we had, you know, we had sort of talked about this book for a long time. Um, and then I left the Bay Area to move to the East Coast. And, you know, I thought that Sylvan and, and Jenny might find a local writer because it certainly would have been easier to do so in a lot of ways. Um, but they reached out to me and said, do you still want to do this project? And I was, you know, I think this is really the ideal thing when you can work with friends that you love and respect so much on a beautiful project, like it doesn't get a lot better than that. And Sylvan shipped me three or four giant boxes of, um, ingredients to get me started. (laughs) And I set up a little Japanese grocery in my basement and, uh, and we went from there. Um, Sylvan, did you have a vision for like the kind of cookbook you wanted? Like, did you want it to be an accessible entry point? Did you want it to be like the way to do it exactly like you would do it in the restaurant? Like, what were you thinking? Yeah, so in the beginning, I I definitely had been thinking a lot about this. I mean, I had already a team in mind, so I knew my wife was going to be the editor. Um, When I first started thinking about it, she didn't have, she wasn't running Hardy Grant, which is the publisher. Mm -hmm. Um, So I knew I had an editor. My sister, Aya Brackett, is the photographer, and she's been doing photos with me forever. so I'd been thinking about this for a very long time, but it's also cookbooks are so much work. And I've witnessed uh, through my wife the difficulty of actually pulling it off when you're trying to run a business. So mm-hmm. it wasn't until I had a couple of very uh, great sous chefs that I felt like I could take a little time away to work on it. Um, I didn't want to do another like weeknight 30-minute recipe kind of Japanese cookbook. I think there are quite a few good ones on the market um and i didn't feel like i had a lot to contribute in that way so i think i was thinking of my ideal audience as uh people who really like japanese food and Mm -hmm. who are willing to put a little effort into it Mm -hmm. um and although there are certainly recipes that are are good for a weeknight um there are a lot of project-based recipes so like you know i think the udon chapter has it's eight pages, for instance, um, on how to <laughs> make it from scratch. And uh, the, the yakitori chicken uh, section has 36 steps for breaking down the chicken and making 18 different kinds of skewers. So, you know, they're, they're not like something you would do for a quick dinner for your kids after school. You're like challenging yourself a little bit with some of these if you're a home cook. Like exactly. Myself. Yeah. yeah. Um, JB, you've done this kind of translation before from restaurant cooking to to home cooking. I mean, what do you think is sort of gained and lost in that translation? Oh, I think a a lot is gained, honestly. I did not, you know, I have done maybe a dozen cookbooks with other collaborators, but I'm not a Japanese food expert by any stretch. And, And so I think coming to this with a sense of like what home cooks are willing to do what they're not willing to do what you can buy you know in a regular grocery store um you know sort of like where to lean in and where to lean out mm-hmm. um 
I always say like I'm waving the white flag of the home cook who um <laughs> and and then I think you know what I feel like always separates the, the Udon chapter I, used to be 20 pages is that what you're talking yeah. about <laughs> <laughs> you, it down. Um, you know all the books that I work on I just feel like there is a rigor to these recipes and I was appreciating you know when the New York Times picked this book as one of the best of the year uh they note in particular the clarity of the recipes and I feel particularly proud of that because it is challenging to translate what happens in a restaurant to what can happen in a home kitchen. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Sylvan and I spent the better part of a year, like I would text him like tragic photos and be like, <laughs> I think it's getting better, you know? And, and I think, um, you know, adding the steps that really make a difference for home cooks so that yes, if you invest this time and, you know, money on the ingredients and the energy to make it that the results, the food really does taste like the food that you get at Rentaro, which, you know, yeah. is, the best possible outcome and makes my family who now lives 3000 miles away from the restaurant very, very happy. <laughs> I mean, so is it tough to watch some of those like exacting detail oriented steps that really are like defining of the kind of food you make? Is it tough to watch some of those get, get fudged by home cooks? I'm sure they like tag you in their like Instagram. Um, I'm surprised by the number of uh, very successful dishes that I, I do see. Um, you know, there are the occasional uh, duds, but <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, you know, to do something well, it takes a little practice. So I wouldn't expect somebody to make a, you know, a yakitori breaking down a whole chicken and have it be perfect the first time. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I can't wait to talk to talk about yakitori and also udon. It's going to be so good. Um, we're talking about the new cookbook, Rintaro, named one of the year's best cookbooks by the New York Times. With me are its author, Sylvan Mishima, bracket owner and chef of the restaurant Rintaro here in San Francisco, and Jessica Badalana, co-author and recipe tester of the cookbook. You've got an expert, two experts on cooking here on the on the phone. If you want to give us a call, you can, uh, the number is 866-733-6786. What's a Japanese dish or ingredient you'd like to know more about or make at home? That number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. Of course, you can go to our digital community. If you don't know how to do that, go to kqed.org slash forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the new cookbook, Rintaro, named one of the year's best cookbooks by the New York Times. Joining me are its author, Sylvan Mishima Brackett, owner and chef of the restaurant Rintaro, and Jessica Badalana, co-author and recipe tester of the cookbook. We'll take your questions. What's a Japanese dish or ingredient you'd like to know more about or a dish you'd like to make at home? Numbers 866-733-6786 and the emails forum at kqed.org. I want to start off this uh, segment of the show talking about yakitori. And the reason is, I mean, I have grilled thousands of chicken thighs over the years. And yet what you're doing in here is sort of a whole nother level. So what elevates yakitori in the way that you make it? Yeah, so I, th- I think that what makes yakitori special is that uh, the way of cutting up the chicken is so um, specific so you end up with so many specific parts of a chicken that you might not think of as even existing. For instance, the the rib meat, which is this kind of membrane which um, hangs right below the chicken breast. Um, everybody knows what a chicken tender is, but maybe not so much the chicken kneecap, which is the cartilage with a little meat attached to it, um, which has got a great texture. Or the chicken heart, between the heart and the liver, there's a little bit... Uh, we call it the heart-liver connection, mm. but it's a, a little membrane which you ske- skewer. It's called kanzuri. It's oh, really yeah. rich just, and yeah. fatty, and you only you know it takes I think ten chickens to get two skewers. Um, <laughs> but if you uh, if you break down a chicken in a fairly specific way, you end up with all of these parts which you don't get when you take a chicken thigh and put it on the grill. Mm-hmm. And what about like the sauce that you use? It's kind of simple, right? The tare is really simple, yeah. Just soy sauce, uh, damara, sugar, sake, and mirin, sweet rice wine, which is boiled down, concentrated a little bit. But what makes it special is, um, you know, as the night goes on, we're grilling the chicken uh, over the charcoal and dipping it into that sauce and then the smoky flavor from the chicken goes into the tare and then over the night the tare becomes like really unctuous and deep and delicious and then at the end of the night we boil that to kill all the bacteria store it and then add fresh tare the next day so you've got this kind of mother sauce which um, because of the chicken dipping it becomes special oh wow that's awesome. Um, let's uh, bring in an ingredient question here. John in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. I was wondering where you get chrysanthemum greens locally. Oh, yeah. Good question. Um, you can. We get them from a farm called Hikari Farm, which is a, a second-generation Japanese-American farm down in Watsonville. And they grow the most beautiful, in my opinion, in the uh, northern California. And you can get those at Tokyo Fish mm. in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, Jessica, what did you learn about chicken from doing this kind of process of breaking down the chicken in this ultra-specific way? Uh, well, the devil's really in the details, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, um, I mean, I learned I, – I had never broken down a chicken like that. You know, if you're trained as a like a French-trained cook, which I am, you know, it's like a chicken is – eight parts, or maybe it's 10 parts. Um, and so, you know, you sort of discover this world of like, really of textures too, when you, you know, are cutting up a whole chicken like that. Um, but I will say, you know, yes, in an ideal world, people get whole chickens and they break them down. But we did sort of provide opportunities for people to, you know, if you're starting with a chicken thigh, <laughs> yeah, to cheat, if you're starting with a chicken thigh, if you have a chicken breast, um, if you just start getting chicken livers, like there are 
you know, there are certainly things that you can, you know, you can make in that yakitori chapter um, and will still be delicious because that tare is so delicious. And I, that is actually one of the things that I really learned working on this book is that these sauces that Sylvan makes or these marinades or even the dashi, which is sort of like, you know, the, um, the fundamental underpinning of all Japanese food, like having those, you know, in your pantry, in your fridge, um, just are such a tremendous game changer. And it also takes recipes that might seem a little complicated and puts them in the realm of like very doable because you've sort of planned and you have these, you know, these building blocks the same way that you might have, you know, a building block if you're making a French or an Italian dish. Um, so that's been a real change for me. And now I always have Tari in my fridge, you know, um, and I think it changes, it has changed the way that I I cook for sure. So, but I'm also wondering about the training that you did in Japan. I mean, did it involve breaking down just like chicken after chicken? And that's how you got it. Like, how, what was the sort of um, mentorship that you got from folks? There? So when I, I worked in Japan, I worked in um, Saitama, north of Tokyo, at a soba restaurant, actually. And I was there for oh, about six months or so. I'd worked in restaurants since college, more or less. And mm-hmm. then I went and worked in Japan helping with all sorts of things. I didn't do a whole lot of yakitori. Actually, yakitori is an interesting kind of subculture within Rintaro where there are just a small handful of like people who are very, very good. And honestly, I'm not one of them. I kind of oversee the whole thing. Um, And um, it's kind of developed as its own kitchen within a kitchen. And you know, you can look very clearly at the cooks now and their kind of lineage back. <laughs> um, so, what did you what did you learn at the Silver Restaurant then? Like, how did you train in, in that? I learned mo- all sorts of things. I think the biggest thing that during that time when I was in Japan was eating so much delicious food and really kind of um, thinking about things that I'd eaten in Japan that I thought I could recreate in California. Um, so, I spent a lot of time doing that. I also. I I make a point of the fact that I did not learn how to make soba when I was there. Uh, the chef, Kanji Nakatani, was very generous with his time. He said he'd show me soba, but it would take uh, three years. And I, <laughs> I had just gotten married and was leaving my wife at home, and I didn't have three years. But he showed me how to make udon. So I got my first lesson in udon from him back in 2007 or so, I think. Um, and then... Wow. Came back, started a catering company, and and just practiced, practiced, practiced. Wow. Um, Jessica, yeah, talk to me about udon. Fun things to make. I mean, if there's one thing that I would tell people to make in this book, well, I think you know Americans love noodles. My children love noodles, so it's a, like a great <laughs> gateway recipe. Um, and these are so fun to make because um, it's they're made with a very high gluten uh, flour. And so the dough is like too kind of strong for you to knead it by hand or knead it in a KitchenAid. So um, the method for doing it is you make the dough in a bowl and then you wrap it in oilcloth and you knead it under your feet um, with like, you know, stocking feet. And my kids call them foot noodles. Um, And (laughs) so there's a series of rolling out and then folding and then kneading underfoot and like you sort of stomp on the package and it's extremely satisfying. And very fun. And, you know, my kids now like to sort of, I'm like, okay, it's time for you to do a couple of laps over the udon um, dough. And then it yields these be- a huge batch of these beautiful noodles. So you can make some right away 
and then put some in the freezer. And um, that's something that my my kids now request all the time. And it is a, you know, it's a time commitment, but I always feel like it's time well spent because then I have this freezer stash that I can bust out when I'm really trying to curry favor with. with <laughs> I mean, is, so when is that like basically the process that you learned in Japan? It was just like, this is the way you make the store? Or did you, have you adapted it yourself like over time? I mean, a lot of the technical stuff is pretty true to the way it's done. Um, I mean, the way it's done in Japan is kind of a, a difficult thing to say. It's like the way barbecue is done in the South or, mm-hmm. you know, there's mm-hmm. all sorts of very particular particulars depending on where you are. But um, yeah, so I learned how to make udon at a soba restaurant, and then um, turns out that his soba is fabulous, and his udon was good, but there's even better udon uh, further south. So a few years later, I went further south, and I went to this town called uh, Takamatsu, which is kind of like the Naples of udon. Wait, see, mm-hmm. the Naples to, of, like pizza is to Naples, <laughs> what udon is to Takamatsu. Um Anyway, it's a place where there's just like literally udon shops everywhere and udon is so inexpensive and prevalent that, you know, fast food chains have really don't exist in that city, which is insane. Um, So I spent a little time there eating udon and also learning some more of the specifics, you know, technical stuff of making these dango, these balls, and then kneading them and then stacking them and... um, what was the question? Oh, we were, I was just asking if you had if you had adapted, you know, this, is this like Sylvan style udon, or is it sort of a you know this pure transmission through through the different places you went? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's I mean, I, uh, there's of course the particularities of every chef in Japan has got the little mm-hmm. thing that they do differently, and which makes their thing special. But I mean, there's also. Um, you know, Japan's got a very deep and long uh, culture and um, uh, craft culture, especially. And there's a reason that things are done the way that they're done. So um, <laughs> I don't know if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I mean, Jessica, I mean, you've made, uh, you know, European pastas. I mean, how do you, how would you compare making an udon with making a fettuccine or something? Uh, it's I mean, it, it's more time consuming, but also way more fun. Um, but similar to Italian pasta, like it is the udon, you know, you have once you have, you know, you have these thick, chewy noodles. Um, and then that udon chapter in the book shows you lots of ways to to serve them. The simplest way is just in a in a dashi broth with, you know, maybe a, a sort of poached egg on it. But then there's a, you know, there's a chilled udon with a sesame sauce and there's an, you know, sort of an udon hot pot with seafood. And so, you know, the same way that you see spaghetti used a million ways um, in Italian culture, um, you know, udon gets a very diverse treatment. And we tried to show some of those in, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the book, in the chapter. And, you know, I think it's a, you know, I feel like nobody now hesitates to make fresh fettuccine at home, um, but yet few people have probably made udon at home. Of so the I serious home cooks. Yeah, yeah, if, <laughs> if I myself am hesitating about, about making fettuccine at home <laughs> right this minute. Um, yeah. um, so it's, you know, I think it's a sort of lateral move. If you're a person that likes to make pasta at home, like this is a this is a fun thing yeah. to try for sure. Um, we are talking about the new cookbook, Rintaro, of course, you know, emanating from the restaurant Rintaro, named one of the year's best cookbooks. We're joined uh, by its author, Sylvan Mishima. 
Brackett and the owner and chef of Ruintaro, of course. We're also joined by uh, Jessica Badalana, co-author and the recipe tester of this book. She's the author of many other cookbooks, including uh, Repertoire Her Own. We would love to hear from you. Uh, we're going to get to some more of your questions about you know, Japanese dishes and ingredients that you'd like to know about. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786, or you can email forum at kqed.org. One listener uh, has wants to know about rice. The listener writes, I love rice, and the rice at Rintaro is next level. Can the chef talk about how he makes it and how a home cook can replicate the perfect bowl of rice? Oh, this is a really easy one. Um, <clears throat> so first you have to buy good rice. So uh, we actually use a blend of two kinds of rice. We use uh, Kodo, Koda Kokoho Rose, which you can buy at most uh, local mm-hmm. uh, stores. I think they sell it at Rainbow, for instance. And uh, we use another rice, which is less available, but um, also delicious, called Luna Koshi Hikari. It's uh, Hish- Koshi Hikari is a Japanese varietal. And this Luna Koshi Hikari is um, a relatively new production uh, rice, organic, uh, grown in the Central Valley. Um, and it's like beautiful, pearly, translucent grains when you cook it. Mm. Um, so you have to wash it well. I usually do... Uh, four to six washes. Um, hmm. You want to drain it well. And um, when you're using these rices or any other kind of koshi hikari pl- uh, rice, you usually it's a one-to-one ratio. And I recommend uh, cooking it in a nabe. So either that's a clay pot, a Japanese clay pot. You bring it up to a boil um, over the course of 10 minutes and then uh, lower the heat for another 10 to 15 minutes and then turn it off and let it sit for a few minutes. But if you don't have a clay pot, you could use like a Dutch oven, uh-huh. like a Le Creuset. Yeah. Kind of works well. Um, um, what is – here's a question I have on rice. Like what makes it different to use this difficult to find and like, you know, fascinatingly obscure <laughs> rice versus just, you know, going to the bulk aisle and yeah. pulling on the thing? I mean it's, uh, you know, kind of like any ingredient. I think that kind of like – I remember when I just first started cooking, someone was telling me how delicious these potatoes were that they had. And I was like, what are you talking about? I mean, a potato is a potato. But it turns out that potatoes aren't just potatoes. There are good potatoes and less good potatoes. And um, uh, the rices we use are really nice. And when you cook it, the smell is that very distinct, delicious Japanese cooked rice smell. Um that's uh, grain is shiny. The texture is like a little sticky, but still firm. Uh, the grains hold together. Um, yeah, it's just a... What about rice cookers? What do you think? Uh, rice cookers are great. I just actually bought my first rice cooker recently. <laughs> um, why? That's an interesting question. I mean, given, given this preparation we're talking well, about here, why Well, the thing is rice? they've got a keep warm function, which is, I think, invaluable. Because, I, you know, cooking at home, you'd have to, like, time it so that your rice is done just as you're about to sit down to eat. But this way you can cook the rice a little earlier. There's also a timer so you can set it and then have it cook rice for you in the morning, which I've yet to do. But I love the idea of waking up to the smell of good rice. <laughs> we have a, a rice call on the line as well. Sam in San Francisco, welcome. Hi. Um, so a couple comments, uh, one based on what you just said. But um, the other thing is that I would like to know if your author, uh, are, are, they aware, are they aware of rice sommeliers for sake and 
whatnot. Um, I didn't even know that was a thing until I went to Nobu and a white guy wearing a kimono was the rice sommelier for there. Um, and then to your second point about waking up to rice, um, I'm married to a Filipina. Rice is a part of breakfast. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I love rice. I, I love it, it, it really is. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much, Sam. Appreciate that. Um, I um, am, am curious about a, a rice sommelier. I suppose in some sense, right, you could serve multiple types of, of rice like at, uh, at Rentaro. Right? I mean, you say, I think at, at one point in the book, you say that rice is the real food. If it's not cooked perfectly, we might as well close the restaurant. I actually feel pretty seriously about that. That's that's the one thing where I really lose my cool uh, in the kitchen when uh, I discover bad rice. Oh, no. Um, doesn't happen very often, thankfully. Sylvan <laughs> um, also says that rice is so simple, and yet we did devote like a thousand words to it in the cookbook. That's because right. yeah, that's right. <laughs> again, I mean, I, I mean, a lot of simple things thing. are complicated. Yeah. In a different that's way. it. All yeah. the simple things are like to you know, and I think that's that's the real art of Rintaro is that things seem simple, you know, on the face of it. Like you might get a dish of rice, and you're like, ah, oh, it's a dish of rice, and then you eat it, and as that caller said, like, why is this rice? so amazing and it's i think it's all of these little choices like from the sourcing to the cooking that sylvan makes all along the way that are what takes something you know to the level that that rentaro is at and that his food is at and you know recently i i tried to order what i called the good rice actually the last <laughs> time i was in san francisco i threw out some clothing that i'd brought some like old t-shirts and stuff in order to accommodate <laughs> a bag of the good rice that sylvan had had given me um and then I tried to order more and and I got the wrong rice in the mail and I told Sylvan, he's like, Well, you should just you should just throw out that wrong rice. You should uh, just donate, donate. And reorder. <laughs> yeah, donate. You did. You said you should just donate it and and get the good rice. And you know, so you do feel passionately about it and it wow. does make a difference. Yeah. And also I mean I th I think rice also has uh I mean my my, my kid Lewis, I, I you know, I told him when he was three that if he doesn't finish every grain in his bowl, he's gonna go blind. <laughs> which is <laughs> You know, maybe a little harsh, but he is very good at finishing his rice, and and, and wasting rice in particular is uh, something which I think was kind of uh, taught to me by my mother, who's Japanese, and uh, she learned from her her parents. Um, you don't waste rice. You don't waste rice because of poverty in Japan. I mean, Japan was a very poor country for a very long time. Wow. We're talking about the new cookbook, Rintaro, with its author, Sylvan Mishima Brackett and Jessica Badalana. We'll be back with more on Japanese food right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the new cookbook, Rentaro, named one of the year's best cookbooks by The New York Times just this past week. We are joined by its creator, Sylvan Mishima, bracket owner and chef of the restaurant Rentaro, and Jessica Badalana, co-author and recipe tester uh, of the cookbook. You mentioned right before the break, you know, that your mom is Japanese. Did you learn how to cook particular dishes from her? Like, what were her specialties? She uh, was and is a really incredible cook, and I, I think I credit her with, um, well, I used to, well, I still love to eat, um, uh, with getting me into wanting to cook and then eventually open a restaurant. Um, so I spent a lot of time as a kid making gyoza with her, um, pot stickers. So um, when I was really little, my job was to dip my finger in a bowl of water and moisten the edges of the gyoza wrappers, and then I graduated to a uh, putting the meat in the gyoza wrappers, and then finally folding and pleating them. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that was a, a good project. And then she had a garden, and I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, helping her, you know, pick peas or pull carrots or whatever. And, and also my, I had to bring the compost up, which was my least favorite job. <laughs> um, yeah, so I learned a lot from her. That's interesting. Um, Jessica, you know, gyoza are one of those things that I think – A lot of weekday parent type cooks are sort of like, oh, well, you know, I have some frozen gyoza, you know, and I'll just bust that out. I mean, how different is the gyoza that you're like making by hand and and building out in this way? Well, the flavor is so good in these. Um, And they the batch makes I can't remember makes a lot like a lot, a lot, Um, which I think is nice because if you're going to go. Again, you know, like so many things in this book, if you're going to go through the effort, like the payoff has to be, you know, the payoff should be good. And I think in this case, not only is the flavor so good, um, but also it makes enough that you can eat some and freeze some and then pull them out. So then you can have this sort of weeknight thing. Um, And Sylvan included a little trick in here. If you get the gyoza at the restaurant, they come sort of bottom side up with this like lacy, like sort of almost like a wings around them. Um, This like crispy little... Ugh, like pancake footer on these dumplings that's <laughs> so irresistible and the method for for making that uh is in the book and this was another time that i made these and i did enlist my children who grudgingly helped me um you know with some of the like the moistening the edges and the putting the mm-hmm. meat in them and we made them and i was like oh my god it just it tastes they taste just like the like, rest. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. That's like the flavor. And we, you know, like the good rice for a while, we were like, okay, is it like, is it a night to have like the good dumplings versus the ones that we get, you know, frozen <laughs> at the grocery store? Um, and I'm due to make another batch, but that's another fun project and a nice one to do with, um, you with know, family, with, with your kids. Yeah. yeah. Family, friends. Yeah. Um, what's, what sort of differentiates yours, would you say? Oh, uh, let's see here. Well, um, I should say the recipe is is a little different than most res- Japanese recipes for gyoza, which tend to be a little smaller and, and uh, the skin a little thinner. Um, my mother made more kind of Chinese-esque gyoza, which were a little bit bigger with thicker wrappers. Um, 
And then I've taken the recipe and refined it further. And one of the women who's worked with me for a long time, Tomoko Tokumaru, is kind of our gyoza section chief, and she has further refined them. Uh, we put um, a stock that's got a lot of gelatin in it. You make it with a lot of chicken chicken feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call it chicken foot jelly. Um, just to <laughs> we got a, foot noodles. We got chicken foot jelly. Yeah, this to, is really appetizing. Uh, you know, just to make it look, seem a little zany. Yeah. Um, it, uh, but the jelly melts kind of like a shalambao or a Shanghai dumpling in the meat and makes them especially juicy, which I think is good. Um, yeah. And what we about oh, that good. too, though? In What's, the book, they're cheap because maybe you don't want to boil chicken feet as step one of this yes. process. Um, <laughs> so we, you know, if you start with good chicken stock and you add gelatin to it, you know, you get some of the nice flavor and then some of that like unctuous sort of like, you know, lip coating gelatin. Um, and it and it is a, it's a great hack, I think. And and all readers should um, be thanking Jessica for. Uh, helping curb my an- annoying, super labor-intensive long ways when <laughs> she has provided some really great and fully functional shortcuts, which um, I'm really appreciative of. Um, are there any... Mar- uh, Martina over on our Discord uh, says, I'd love to know what kind of adaptations they made to move these recipes from being doable in a kitchen with a prep team uh, with a, and stations to being achievable in a home kitchen by one person. And I am really curious, have you adopted any of the shortcuts for the restaurant or uh, like you, because you discovered actually this way works really well. Oh, I would never. I, know. I mean, honestly, <laughs> yeah. there are, how dare you? There aren't that many <laughs> shortcuts. Um, I mean, the, the gelatin, you know, coming from chicken foot or coming from a packet of gelatin, that's, it's yeah. easier, but it's it's um, since I have chicken feet around anyway, and I'm already making stock. It's not that big a deal. Yeah. Um, I think in in a lot of ways, you know, the yes, some of the dishes have you know multiple components. It'll be like a few sauces that can buy or a marinade in a sauce, things like that. But there's nothing. Or there were very few instances, I think, because the food at Rintaro is at its heart and soul, like simple food executed at a high level with premium ingredients that, you know, I think we, you know, other books that I've worked on, you're like, well, nobody has that weird piece of equipment or, you know, like there was more, there's more of that. But in this book, it, um, I mean, sure, having a team of prep cooks would make anyone's life easier, but I think, (laughs) um, you know, there weren't tons of things that I was like, oh boy, like this is never like... We can't replicate this at home. So let's assume that we have talked people into trying to make some of these recipes. Um, Where do we start building out the pantry, Sylvan? Like, what what would be the first? Like, if you were like, all right, I'm going to start. I'm going to begin to elevate my Japanese cooking. What's the first thing you're buying for the pantry to to do that? Mm, That's a good question. I I I, I suppose it depends on what you're going to make. And I people ask me sometimes what they should cook from the cookbook, and I really can't answer that question. I think people should flip through and look at the pictures. I mean, they're there. We just want to be told what to do. So. I know people do. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I can do that. You can't do that. <laughs> um, to find something that looks exciting to them that they're going to want to put a little energy into. Yeah. Um, uh, good katsubushi and good kombu. So katsubushi is smoked, uh, smoked dried uh, bonito. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get ours from a, a factory down in southern Japan in Kagoshima. Um and it sounds esoteric, but it's actually one of the main ingredients of Japan. It's about as esoteric in Japan as olive oil is in Italy. Huh. So um, <laughs> got to kind of really take it seriously. Um, um, good soy sauce, um, mirin, 
cooking sake. But when you say good soy sauce, so like, you know, for example, listener Joan writes, what kinds of things should a home cook look for when shopping for ingredients? Where do you recommend shopping, especially in the East Bay? Are there particular tools you recommend for the home chef? I, I'll, I'll just say... So use soy sauce as one example. Like, what? Where would you go to get your soy sauce? Um, so we get our soy sauce from a company called Yamaki, which is kind of a medium-sized soy sauce factory, actually based in Saitama, where I worked. Um, and uh, they use all soybeans from Japan. They a lot of them are organic. Um, it's just delicious, rich, uh, salty. Um, and what would you say is different about that from, you know, grabbing a bottle of, you know, Kikaman or whatever from the... Yeah, I, I don't know. It's, uh, uh, what's a good analogy? You know, it's, it's again, maybe back to olive oil. It's like the difference between a bottle of extra virgin olive oil versus like factory produced expeller pressed olive oil mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, like a kind of a Budweiser versus a... Sierra Nevada, you know, it's that kind of difference. Yeah, yeah. I think also we, you know, we sort of anticipated this question from readers. I mean, I was fortunate, as I said, like Sylvan shipped me stuff. And, you know, even for me who, you know, I get, I will order interesting ingredients and, you know, and I don't mind sort of paying a premium for them. There were some like, it it was sort of eye-opening, like Sylvan sent a bottle of rice vinegar and, you know, it's not that much more expensive than the rice vinegar I had been purchasing, but it tastes so much better. And I, I, you know, I felt sort of dumb that I hadn't made that connection before. Like, of course, there are grades of all of these things of mm-hmm. soy sauce, of rice vinegar. Um, but Sylvan did team up with uh, the folks at the Japanese Pantry, which is a San Francisco based um, Japanese food import or Japanese ingredient import company. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also, like Sylvan, rigorously source. They go to the places where these products are made and they brought in, you know, all sorts of things. And together, um, Sylvan and the Japanese pantry sort of curated a, you know, a box, like a starter pack, basically, that has katsubushi, has soy sauce, has rice wine and mirin, and has, you know, the good the good rice. Um, and you can purchase it on Japanese, the Japanese pantry. The Japanese pantry. I know this because yeah. I bought one yesterday. Oh, really? um, in <laughs> case, in case my wife Sarah is listening, that. that's your present. Um, <laughs> um, and, and it that's looks like a great starter pack. For yeah, people. looking amazing. Um, and you know, for for the basics though too, right? Berkeley Bowl, Tokyo Fish. Um, where yes, where how about, yeah, Tokyo Fish is. I'm a huge supporter of Tokyo Fish in Berkeley. They've uh, got just a great selection of fish and and uh, lots of really good lots of really good dry goods. So. Yeah. Um, we have a few, um, more, uh, questions and, and comments. Um, what are the tools? Let's talk about knives specifically really quick. What, where do you go to get a knife if you need to, if you want to like break down a mackerel or, you know, cut up a chicken into 18 pieces? Uh, you could get one knife to do both of those called, uh, Honinuki. You can get that from Bernal Cutlery. Um, they've got a pretty wonderful selection of Japanese knives and a really knowledgeable staff and cheap ones to very, very, very expensive ones. So um, that's probably my highest recommendation. Yeah. What about, um, there's a place right by Tokyo Fish too, right? And uh, it's called like Japanese Steel, I think. Oh, Hida Tool. Oh, Hida Tool. Yeah, yeah. Hida Tool. I haven't yeah. been there for a while, but they used yeah. to have a really good knife selection. I'm not sure uh, what it looks like now. Um, 
You know, one of the things, uh, JB, that I think, you know, uh, producer Grace Wan and I really appreciated about this uh, book is it's not really like the dumbed down version of the recipes. How did you think about, you know, some of the ingredients, though, like, say, conifer needles uh, that are used to smoke fish? Was that just kind of like, you're like, well, people can go find that, right? You know, I think there are, the, for the most part, yes, like people can find the majority of the ingredients in there. There are some things that, you're, you know, are going to be more of an effort, but I think there are people that like that too, that want to, you know, you know, want to kind of go the extra mile. Will everyone be able to do it? No, but that is sort of the exception in the book, I think. And mm-hmm. now, you know, I live in rural Maine and I think, you know, anyone listening in the Bay Area is head and shoulders above what I can access because... I mean, the Japanese population here is uh, very small. And so you don't see those ingredients reflected, you know, mm-hmm. at the grocery store. I think in the Bay Area, you know, a lot of stuff is really accessible. I mean, I probably could, you know, conifer needles are the one things that I might have, a th- you know, a leg up on people in San Francisco. <laughs> but, um, um, this is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Um, so when I did want to ask you about the way that this production and also Rintaro has really been a family production, right? Like your father trains as like a temple um, carpenter, right? And then comes back and, and helps you build out um, Rintaro. How, how much of that is a part of like what the restaurant is, that it is this kind of family affair? Yeah, Um well, I think it's a a, a big part. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I I oftentimes talk about how I, I'd worked in French and Italian restaurants for most of my young cooking life, and I uh, love French and Italian food. And I actually worked in in France when I was nineteen years old, um, and got abused horribly. <laughs> um, but I I always felt with French or Italian food that I I could tell if it tasted good, but I couldn't tell if it was right, like if it was correct. And because I grew up eating Japanese food, um, opening a Japanese restaurant seemed to make a lot more sense because I could tell if something was correct, if that makes any sense. Um, And then, of course, I I grew up in this house that my father built for us um, way up in the foothills, up up on the San Juan Ridge, Mm -hmm. uh, up in uh, gold country. And... um, so when I was thinking about a restaurant, I was like, oh, he, maybe he could help build it. And he gave me a really good deal. <laughs> I'm lucky. <laughs> I mean, do you think that some of the exactitude came from him? I mean, I, I imagine that type of carpentry requires like a uh, tremendous kind of attention to detail. Yeah. I mean, I think anybody who spent a little time in Japan will, will tell you that there's an exactitude in almost everything in Japan. Um, and so when that's kind of uh, related to a craft, like that craft can get very, very deep. So I, I did witness that, of course, growing up. Um, the, the work it takes to do something really well that seems kind of straightforward, mm-hmm. um, but to do something very, very skillfully uh, takes a lot, a lot of practice. Yeah. Um, Jessica, what do you think was the one technique in this book that you feel like required the most of that like not the easiest thing but actually kind of like the most detail oriented thing if people want to challenge well i actually think the thing that required for me the most attention 
to detail is making the dashi broth, which you make with the the bonito, the smoked skipjack tuna, mm-hmm. um, and kombu, the seaweed, and that's it, and water. So three ingredients. But you know, there, it's easy for it to go over the ra- like off the rails if you you know if you bring it to too vigorous of a boil or you let the kombu sit in it too long. And you can sort of, in some ways, it's a great experiment for somebody starting out with Japanese cooking because you can see the way that the flavor of it changes, um, mm. you know, from the moment of perfection to the, you know, as it as it sits. And um, and that was one of these things where I looked at the recipe and I was like, great, three ingredients, perfect, like <laughs> off to the races. Um, and then, you know, actually, there is a lot more subtlety to it. And, you know, it's a... I think it could be very illuminating for somebody uh, to, you know, sort of make it the way that it's written as the recipe and then, you know, kind of break it because you can tell like the flavor changes and um, and it becomes kind of less, you know, less delicious. And the dashi ends up in. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I would say probably like 50 percent of the recipes in in wow. the book. Um, so, you know, it's worth spending that time and energy to try and master that before you move on because it's like you know it's like wearing good socks it like you know it, it underpins everything else and like <laughs> that's what they say in japan yes <laughs> i um sylvan you favorite recipe in here you you gotta have one you've got maybe one with some you know familial association something uh, my favorite recipe uh, my absolutely favorite recipe in here would be uh, um, you know, I really like the dashimaki tamago recipe. That's the folded omelet that has a lot of dashi that we're talking about. Um, it's similarly pretty simple. It's eggs and good dashi and seasoning. Um, but the trick is in the heat of the pan and um, the kind of more technical aspects of it. And it's it's one of those recipes, one of those dishes that. Um, it's kind of like a rite of passage for a cook in the kitchen to, mm. to serve it when I put it on the station for it to be good enough to sell. Um, but it's a f- I think it's fun. It's inexpensive to fail because it's eggs. Mm. Um, and it's uh, challenging but doable. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's pr- – all right. All right. I may have to try that one. This very evening or tomorrow, um, we've been talking about the new cookbook, Rintaro, named one of the year's best cookbooks by the New York Times. We've been joined by Sylvan Mishima, bracket owner and chef of the restaurant Rintaro. Thanks so much, Sylvan. That's been a pleasure. And we've also been joined by Jessica Badalana, co-author and recipe tester of the cookbook. Thanks for coming on, Jessica. My favorite recipe is the curry rice. You didn't ask, but oh. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> and I also heard that uses S&B curry powder, so I'm. Uh, that seems easy. Um, uh, <laughs> thanks, Jessica, again. Um, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Form Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.